3 triple Z. 92.3 FM. The following program is in English. Thank you. You're tuned in to L'Chaim, to life, with your host, Morris Klein, who just happens to be my baby brother. Aussie, 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 go the Aussies, go the Israelis. Shalom Aleichem and welcome to another L'Chaim to Life. How good have the Aussies been? We're in the top 10 medal tally. A young Israeli, Avishai Semberg, has got her bronze in Taekwondo. Keep going Aussies and Israelis. We have another full L'Chaim ahead of us, leading off with my guest Peter Wertheim, co-CEO of the ECAJ, the Executive Council of Australian Jewry. Alan Friedman, Vice President of the Australian Jewish Association, exploring Israel with Fefi, along with another David Schulberg mythbuster. And we've put together a Lachaim dedication to everyone's favourite, the late, great Jackie Mason of blessed memory. So, Hevra, it's Lachaim time here on 92.3 FM, 3 triple Z. Stick around. Joining us tonight on L'Chaim is Peter Wertheim, co-CEO of the ECAJ, the Executive Council of Australian Jewry. Peter, welcome to L'Chaim, to life. Thank you, Morris. It's a pleasure to be here. Peter, please, for our new L'Chaim listeners, what is the ECAJ all about? What's its raison d'etre? Okay, well, in every state in Australia, there is a Jewish communal roof body. In New South Wales, it's the Jewish Board of Deputies. In Victoria, it's the JCCV. There's one in every other state as well, and also in the ACT. And they deal with all the state issues, state government, local issues, and so on. Each of those roof bodies is in turn affiliated to a national body, which is the Executive Council of Australian Jury. They elect councillors to our body, and we deal with all the national issues and international issues, anything to do with uh, interrelationships with the, the federal government, federal politicians, and so on. So the ECAJ effectively is the national roof body. We also have under our umbrella other national uh, Jewish organisations such as National Council of Jewish Women, WITSO, Joint Distribution Committee of Australia, Maccabi, Orges and so on. So it is a truly national body. It's been around since 1944. It is as broadly representative as any national body around the world. And directly or indirectly, we have something like 200 major Jewish organisations under our umbrella. Schools, synagogues, women's organisations, sporting clubs, professional associations and so on. Excellent. So roof body of all roof bodies. Peter, the ECAJ complained to and met recently with the ABC Managing Director David Anderson and his Chief of Staff, Michael Rippon, to discuss the ABC's hostile anti-Israel coverage, in particular a recent Q&A program about Israel's Operation Guardian of the Walls, defensive war against over 4,000 Hamas rockets, a Q&A program that can only be described as a gang-up on Israel. And Jews, Peter, could you please outline the nature of the complaint to the ABC and how the meeting went? Okay, I'll start with the second question. I mean, the meeting was very friendly. There was no tension there at all. Uh, the managing director uh, was quite open and frank about shortcomings in the coverage and in the Q&A program, the fact that there was no Jewish community representative voice, the fact that uh, the uh, majority of the panellists uh, were on one side of the debate and only Dave Sharma, who is not there as a representative of the Jewish community, uh, was on the other side of the debate. So it was really four against one. And, uh, you know, Dave Sharma, as a former Australian ambassador to Israel, certainly knows his stuff and did a, a creditable job. But it, it was um, a stack. It, it can't be described as anything but that. And whilst the Palestinians had a, you know, their own communal voice there and the supporting voice from uh, a lawyer who was there and, uh, and one other uh, panellist as well who admitted he knew nothing about the issue but was on their side anyway, there was no Jewish communal voice at all. There were two questions asked from the audience. They were members of the Jewish community, but they weren't representative of any Jewish organisation. Um, in fact, a question had been scheduled to be asked by a representative from the Jewish Board of Deputies. She actually had a mic on her lapel all ready to ask a question, but she was passed over in favour of another one. And, and the result really was that the Jewish community got locked out. So that was the complaint and didn't seem to be any demur from uh, the managing director about that. 
There didn't seem to be any demur about many of the shortcomings in the news and current affairs coverage of the ABC of the Gaza conflict in May. In fact, there seemed to be a lot of concessions made about that, although that was subsequently denied. So more to the point, though, was what the purpose of the meeting was. It was to try to get some action and to get some steps taken to remedy some of these shortcomings so that they wouldn't recur. And there were a number of concrete steps that were proposed uh, in confidence by the managing director himself, uh, which we we thought were very constructive. And uh, we left the meeting quite hopeful that uh, there could be some progress on that score. Subsequently, of course, um, you you would have heard that uh, there was a different account of the meeting from the ABC. We stand by our account of the meeting. We're rather disappointed that taken that attitude and that the steps that were put forward to remedy some of the shortcomings uh, have now been put into abeyance. That's that's a real pity. Yeah, that uh, different uh, view of... The meeting from the ABC raises more questions. Uh, i just read from your ECHA media statement. The meeting was held in a very positive spirit. Mr Anderson was keen to explore specific constructive steps to prevent a recurrence of the problems we raised and improve the quality of the ABC's news coverage. ECHA President Gillian Siegel said after the meeting, despite the obvious difficulties, we secured a commitment for follow-up meetings and engagement with both key ABC staff and leadership and have reason to hope for a productive outcome. What were the obvious difficulties and do you still have the uh, hope for productive outcome? Well, the obvious difficulties are with the ABC's entrenched culture. Correct. Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, that's what that's referring to. Uh, as to whether or not uh, we, we still have hope for uh, constructive steps being taken, well, we do. That really is in the hands of the ABC. We're willing to cooperate, but uh, ultimately uh, it, it seems to us that once word got out about the very fact of the meeting, the quite a number of uh, sources within uh, the ABC and beyond the ABC who are, shall we say, not friendly to Israel and, and not friendly to our community seem to, to react quite hysterical way just to the, the mere fact of the meeting, let alone the, the any concessions that might have been made or remedies that might have been proposed. And I think from my point of view anyway, that's uh, that's what accounts for the ABC's subsequent response, which was completely out of character with the tenor of the meeting. Well, in light of what you've just sort of indicated, do you think uh, David Anderson and Michael Rippon were genuine in their acknowledgement and apology? Or were they just going through the lip service motions? And has an apology been made on air by Q&A? And have you heard any more from the ABC's complaint unit? So firstly, I think David Anderson was absolutely genuine. I have no doubt about that. Good. Uh, Michael Rippon was just there uh, as an observer. He didn't say anything. As to whether we've heard anything further since then, no, we haven't. And uh, that is a great shame because Q&A as a program uh, has had its difficulties of late. Its viewership, which was once around a million, is now down to about 200,000. Well, it goes up and down, of course, but, you know, everybody, everybody acknowledges that the, uh, there's been a drastic decline and that even predates uh, Hamish MacDonald taking over the program last year. So, you know, he's now left and gone to another, uh, another media company and the problems remain unaddressed as far as we're concerned. And the deeper problems with, within the ABC is to its uh, general attitude of ignorance and bias against Israel, that's all I can describe it as, remains as bad as it was before and, and nothing's changed. And that, I think, is to the detriment of the ABC as an organisation. It's not just a matter of the interests of the Jewish community. I think this is uh, something that ultimately affects the quality of the ABC as an organisation, and that affects all Australians. And Australia's uh, government-funded TV network, there's a lot of talk of uh, an independent ombudsman. No doubt the ECAJ would be supportive of that. Oh, yes. Uh, Our president, Gillian Siegel, uh, had a piece published in the Jewish News a couple of weeks ago where we made it very clear that uh, that that's one thing that we think is now essential. And she uh, drew attention to the fact that independent external complaints units are the rule for, say, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, South African Broadcasting Corporation, and here in Australia for SBS and for other government instrumentalities, including the Australian Tax Office. They have an independent complaints unit too through an inspector general. So this is not a radical proposal. It it does seem to us, uh, and I think to most people in the Jewish community, that this is an essential reform that can't be delayed any longer. I'm not sure it would cure the underlying problem with the culture, but it certainly might have some influence on it. Peter, I'll move on from the ABC. The uh, ECAJ two weeks back hosted the opposition leader, Anthony Albanese, via Zoom. And yes, Albo is a friend of the Jewish community in Israel. 
You pressed elbow in the two-state solution, which he supports, the BDS, which he's opposed to, and anti-Semitism with his concerns of the serious rise of anti-Semitism in Australia and universally. Could you please take us through some of the outcomes there? Well, firstly, let me say that this particular Zoom session was attended by some 70 Jewish communal leaders across Australia. You know, we invited everybody from both within our network, that is the state roof bodies and the other national Jewish organisations who come directly under our umbrella, but also other Jewish communal organisations, AJAC and ZFA, uh, and they had their representatives there as well. And by agreement, the Jewish News and JWire were also there. So that was uh, an important uh, Preliminary, And the other important preliminary was that um, Anthony Albanese and his team agreed that the meeting could be recorded and that the recording could be made available to everybody. And it's now freely available via the ECHA website. And I invite everybody who's interested to listen to it because there's nothing like making up your own mind based on what you, you hear yourself rather than getting it secondhand. If only that had been possible with the ABC. <laughs> So uh, we, uh, we thought that Anthony Albanese made some extremely relevant and timely points about all of the issues that you've just uh, mentioned and made it very clear that the party as a whole is not held hostage by some of the more extreme elements who were responsible recently for an appalling resolution that was passed at the Queensland State Conference and which Penny Wong rejected the following day. And, and also those um, such as Bob Carr who are pushing for a similar sort of motion at the upcoming New South Wales State Conference in October. So I thought that all of those points were well made, well articulated, and they were on the record. I mean, I don't think we could have asked for anything more than that. And the media coverage that followed, you know, from both sides of politics, you know, the centre-left and the centre-right media was entirely positive. Uh, as I think it should have been, because it was a, a moderate, sensible position that was being outlined by, uh, by Anthony Albanese on behalf of his party. So, again, I'd encourage everybody to listen to the, or to view, because it was fully recorded, to view the, uh, the session and, and make up their own minds. Peter, as I indicated, you pressed elbow on his two-state solution, who that would be, who Israel's partners of peace would be. Mm. Albo didn't want to go into that, didn't want to discuss it, didn't want to discuss what it would look like. Uh, when I say partners of peace, Jew hating Hamas and uh, the PA, which is not much better. Uh, yet he didn't really want to go into that. Um, no discussion what a two-state solution would look like. You know, that sort of leaves it out, out in the open a bit. Well, I think there are two separate questions. One was the principle of a two-state solution. And he was clear that Palestine under any two-state solution would basically be the West Bank, Gaza Strip, and, and maybe some presence in um, the eastern part of Jerusalem. It wouldn't have to be exactly as it was before the 1967 war. I don't think he, he pegged himself to that at all. But, you know, essentially something along those lines. So I, I think he was, he was reasonably clear about that side of it. But then when I pressed him on the other aspect of ALP policy, which was about recognising a Palestinian state. Now, this is, this is something which I think needs a little more unpacking, and that's why I asked him about it. Most people don't seem to understand what recognising a state means. If Australia was to recognise a state of Palestine, it's essentially making a statement that a state of Palestine already exists. You can't recognise a state that doesn't exist. And if you do recognise Palestine, then you're actually making a statement that on the ground there is an entity that meets the description of a state and you're simply recognising that reality. That's, that's what recognition means. Now, that's a very different thing from saying there ought to be a Palestinian state as part of a negotiated two-state solution. Two entirely different propositions. And I don't think that difference is generally well understood. Uh, and that's why I pressed Anthony Albanese on it. And I said, well, OK, I understand you, you say that there ought to be a Palestinian state, you support a two-state solution, the details to be negotiated. Fair enough, that's orthodox. But when your party passes a resolution saying that a future Labor government should, as a priority, recognise a Palestinian state, that's, that's a different thing you're saying that there already is a Palestinian state. And what is it? Which entity is it that you're proposing to recognise? 
And of course, he parried the question, as you quite rightly pointed out. Uh, he said, well, look, that's going to be a matter for a future Labor government. In fact, the whole question of whether and when Australia under a Labor government would recognise the state of Palestine would, would have to be determined at the time, based on the conditions at the time, uh, and based on an assessment of whether it would make a contribution towards peace or not. And so he wouldn't be drawn on that question and he wouldn't be drawn on which entity would be recognised if that was the decision, because I guess he would say that the circumstances between now and then might change. But really, there's not really much to choose from there. And our position has always been uh, in our writings, in our articles and so on. There is no entity there that meets the description of a state, that neither the Palestinian Authority nor Hamas constitute a government that is capable of asserting its authority over the entire territory, the, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Therefore, there is no state and there is nothing to recognise. You get no argument from me there, absolutely no argument, except the Olympic Committee's already recognised them. There was, I noticed there was a Palestinian contingent march out in the opening ceremony independently, not as part of the, as the uh, refugee contingent. Would the ECAJ consider registering a uh, bit of a concern there to the IAC here, the Australian Olympic Committee? <laughs> Well, I don't think the Australian Olympic Committee would have made that decision. It would have been the International Olympic Committee. <laughs> sure, they can. The concern should be directed, and I think it's a matter for the State of Israel to do that. On the other hand, I also noticed that at the opening ceremony, there was for the first time a moment of silence and recognition of the uh, the murder of 11 Israeli athletes at the 1972 Munich Games, which I, th I thought was a very decent and positive thing to do. So, you know, once again, it's a, kind of a mixed story, isn't it? It is. It was very moving. I watched it and uh, shed yes. a tear. Peter, um, the rise of anti-Semitism was discussed with great concern, as always. Elbow mentions the far-right uh, extremism, also acknowledges the rise of left anti-Semitism. Um, you acknowledge the uh, far-right, the left, and religious sources. Yes. Um, I was going to ask you, we've run out of time, I was going to ask you to uh, please explain and identify the so-called religious sources you're referring to. But as I mentioned, we'll have to have you back. It's been, you've been a delight. Really thrilled that uh, you've joined us here on Lachaim. Noticeably, we weren't at the Zoom. We've only just been going a few weeks, this program. But I want to sincerely thank you for joining us on Lachaim. You've been very insightful. And please, let's have you back again. Yeah, it'll be my pleasure. And, um, yeah, I was just look referring mainly to Islamist. Uh, Good. There is still also a, re a residue, not, not common these days, of Christian anti-Semitism, yeah. but coming from a very narrow source. Good. Peter, thanks for joining us. Yasha Koyach to you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, the Australian Jewish Association, which does not come under the umbrella of the ECAJ, has a number of different perspectives to the recent statements and proclamations made by the leader of the opposition, Anthony Albanese. Let's have a listen to the AJA Vice President, Alan Friedman, with his latest editorial. Some of our communal organisations have been patting themselves on the back recently for reaching out to the Labour Party and reporting on a dialogue they have had with current leader Anthony Albanese and other party heavyweights. They all got a bit excited with what they perceived as positive experiences, but I have to say, I'm much less enthralled. The issue of rising anti-Semitism and the nasty upswing in BDS promotion was raised, at which point Albo voiced the expected condemnation. Well, of course he would. Not even Albo could avoid saying anything else and remain credible. He then went on to say that Labor would support the adoption of the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. But I can guarantee one thing, this will never happen. For those unfamiliar with it, this latest definition of anti-Semitism was formulated in 2016 by the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance in Europe. And what makes it work are the explanatory notes that complement it, one of which states very clearly that unfair, and I repeat unfair, criticism of Israel is indeed regarded as anti-Semitism. And herein lies the problem particularly for left-leaning organisations and political parties such as Labour, which is getting closer to the Greens all the time. Everybody on the left insists that their criticism of Israel is never anti-Semitism, but they get caught under this definition because their regular slander of Israel has never been applied to any other country. 
But this also raises another question. Why has Labor never called for a parliamentary motion for this definition to be adopted? It is hard to take them seriously. Also discussed were other subjects such as Labor's policy of recognising something called a state of Palestine. But did our leadership organisations even bother to raise the disgraceful gagging of Michael Danby when all he wanted to do was introduce some debate on the subject? If they did, they are not telling. Also on the agenda was the blatant anti-Israel bias of the ABC. And yet after all this discussion, what successes can our erstwhile leaders claim they have achieved here? I can tell you, absolutely nothing. They licked the boots of the Labour Party, but didn't get one concession out of them on anything of real importance to the Australian Jewish community. Yes, Albo criticised Bob Carr, but that wasn't taking much of a risk. What we need is to see the Labour Party standing up for the Jewish community. But all our leaders got was more spin than a stack of records. And what was worse, they thanked Albo and his comrades profusely and no doubt walked away congratulating each other on how successful they have been. Does the word naive come to mind? And let's not forget that old chestnut where Albo and Penny Wong reiterated Labor's support for a two-state solution. And our leaders swallowed it hook, line and sinker, despite the fact that for over 100 years, the Arabs have not shown one iota of interest in coexisting peacefully alongside a Jewish Israel. Labor has got our communal leaders wrapped around their little fingers, and they know it. All Labor needs to do is make a few warm and fuzzy motherhood statements and our lefty communal organisations fall into line like good little ALP soldiers. The only way to get better service from our communal organisations is to let them know loud and clear how you, we, as a Jewish community, want them to represent us. Here at the AJA, we will do our part to get the message from the silent majority across, but we need your support to do it effectively. We are already the most engaged Jewish communal organisation on social media, and our local organisations absolutely hate that. They hate it because you, me and everyone else has a voice that they can't ignore. So if you are not yet a member of the Australian Jewish Association, please join. It's easy to do by going to jewishassociation.org.au. The more support we get, the louder our voice becomes and the easier it is for us to fight on your behalf. We can't do it without you. This is Alan Friedman for the Australian Jewish Association. I'm Ernie Singer, and this is your daily newscast from Israel News Talk Radio. Human Rights Watch accused Israel and Gaza terror groups on Tuesday of war crimes during May's fighting, saying Israel struck civilian buildings with no apparent military targets nearby. Human Rights Watch said it would issue a separate report on the more than 4,000 terrorist missiles launched at Israel. NGO Monitor, which investigates the activities of non-governmental organizations, blasted what it called the pseudo-report, saying it was the latest addition to a collection of false narratives. An NGO Monitor report cited NGOs for infighting non-combatant casualty figures by including terrorists and Gazans who were killed or wounded by terror missiles that landed in the Hamas-ruled area. The Times of Israel reports the European Union has called for independent investigations of the deaths of two Gaza residents at the hands of Hamas security forces. One died of wounds suffered when he was shot after the interior ministry said the car he was riding in drove through a checkpoint. The other was allegedly beaten by security forces during a raid. Citing the Palestinian Authority's Ma'an news agency, Israel National News reports Islamic Jihad joined Gaza's Hamas rulers on Monday in threatening to escalate the situation on the border with Israel following Sunday evening Israeli reprisals for arson balloon attacks. Lebanese newspaper Al-Akhba reported Gaza terror groups will begin launching explosive balloons and are considering additional actions, including the resumption of disturbances along the border. 
Citing Israel Hayom and the Jewish News Syndicate, the Jewish press reports Interior Minister Ayelet Shaked has granted permanent residency to a Palestinian Authority couple who saved the lives of three members of the Mark family following a terrorist attack in 2016, which took the life of Michael or Mickey Mark near the Adram Junction in the southern Hebron Hills. Fleeing death threats in the PA, the couple was granted temporary residence in 2019. The Jerusalem Post reports the Israel Defense Forces evicted seven families on Tuesday from their unauthorized homes in the Beit Dror outpost on an abandoned base in the Judean Jewish community of Adora, where families moved after the attack on the Marks. The eviction followed the Supreme Court's rejection of a petition against the demolition of the homes. Jordanian newspaper Al-Rai revealed on Tuesday that Jordan thwarted an attempt by Islamic State terrorists to kill Israeli soldiers near the southern Dead Sea border, arresting four terrorists between late 2020 and February. A charge sheet prepared by Jordanian prosecutors said they planned to first attack Jordanian soldiers in the nearby Ghor Asafi area. The Defense Ministry announced on Tuesday that Defense Minister Benny Gantz is flying to Paris on Wednesday to update French counterpart Florence Parly on Lebanon's cabinet and financial crisis, the ongoing NSO spyware affair, and the Iran nuclear deal. Citing Iranian state media, Reuters reports Iran said on Tuesday its security forces had arrested a network of agents working for Israel's Mossad intelligence agency and had seized the cache of weapons it said were to be used to provoke clashes during recent protests sparked by water shortages in the Islamic Republic. An intelligence ministry official said that Israel had attempted to carry out acts of sabotage in various places during the recent presidential elections. Judoka Said Modley, who fled Iran after revealing that his national team coaches had ordered him to lose in the semifinals of the 2019 World Championships to avoid facing an Israeli in the final, won the silver medal in his weight class for Mongolia on Tuesday at the Tokyo Olympics. Despite normalization, no reason given by a Sudanese judoka for pulling out of match against an Israeli. Prime Minister Naftali Bennett said on Tuesday that the cabinet is close to approving a third shot of coronavirus vaccine after health ministry data showed 2,212 new confirmed carriers on Monday, numbers not seen since mid-March, and 53% above Friday's 1,438 cases. Bennett said the numbers don't tell the whole story. The rate of positive tests rose above 2% for the first time since March on Sunday, with a 2.3% infection rate on Monday. Tuesday saw the health ministry authorize the vaccination of immunocompromised or immunosuppressed children aged 5 to 11. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention raised its travel health notice for Israel today and Sumeria and Gaza on Monday to level 3, one level below its most severe travel rating. The notice said make sure you are fully vaccinated before traveling to Israel and Unvaccinated travelers should avoid non-essential travel to Israel, citing variants to the virus. This has been Ernie Singer at Israel News Talk Radio. The news from Israel is courtesy of INTR, Israel News Talk Radio. Listen online to more straight talk from Israel at israelnewstalkradio.com. Explore Israel with Effie, Masada, Caesarea, Jerusalem. For many... These places are no more than the name of a city or national park. However, for others, these places are far more than just names of a place on a map. These sites are some of the many hidden gems which exemplify and are an integral part of our Jewish history, heritage and culture. Allow me to take you on a journey back into time and see history unfold before your eyes. Tread on the land where ancient mighty empires once existed and ruled and walk in the footsteps of the biblical figures from the Old and New Testament in order to hear, feel, touch and taste this magical land of Eretz Israel. Explore Israel with Effie for an unforgettable experience. Effie Kobe, Shalom Aleichem, welcome back to Lachayim. Shalom, shalom, Boker Tov, Moshe, to you and all your listeners from Effie here in Eretz Israel, waiting to take you guys on a magical trip on 92.3 FM, 3 triple Z Lachaim. Terrific. Effie, um, I believe uh, an SOS uh, call went out for a, a tour guide uh, over the weekend and you were back on the road again. Okay, amazing. Last Friday, got a call from a high-tech company. Effie, you're free. Check my calendar. I was for Sunday, two guests from overseas from the States on a working visit uh, with their company to this company. Took them out. Daniel Shalem, absolutely stunning after 17 months, you know, of Gornished. 
all of a sudden had Jerusalem to myself. What a way to do it. Fantastic. And how were they? Beautiful. Two great people, young people, but with a future in the world of high tech, uh, merging with the Israeli company here and good Jewish kids. First time in Israel. So it just blew them away. Absolutely blew them away. Terrific. Where are you taking us today? Right. Okay. Let's go explore Israel with Effie. Going to a magical super site called Bet Govrin Telmerishan National Park. And it's located on Route 1 down to Beit Shemesh and Kiryat Gat, 35 kilometers south. And uh, this is all year round. But the important thing, you can spend here anywhere between one hour to five hours with plenty of shade, picnic spot. The whole day can be spent just there. So what do we have here? We don't have to go further than obviously than in 1 Samuel. Then the people did hide themselves in caves and in thickets and in rocks. National Park of Beit Govrin Telmerishah covers 1,000 250 acres, large areas well known and justly so for its many caves and archaeological remains. Telmerisha occupies the highest point in the park. Geologically, the rock in the area is a thin layer of hard limestone with a lower bedrock of soft chalk. Limestone being malleable can easily be cut. The early masons would hew a hole in the ceiling of the hard limestone, remove the lower layer of soft and moist limestone according to their needs, and at the conclusion of every operation, a bell-shaped cave with an aperture at the top would be formed, and there are literally thousands of these types throughout the area, only of which about 42 are open to the public. Many were later converted into living orders. Now, Merishah appears in the list of cities that Judah, in the book of Joshua 15, verse 44, Rehoboam fortified it against an impending attack of the Egyptian pharaoh Shishak. After the Babylonian exile, Edomites settled throughout the area of southern Judea, and the area was called Idumea. Marissa, as it was then called, was a Gentile city with a cosmopolitan population of Edomites, Sidonians, and in the Hellenistic period, Greek-speaking people. John Hyrcanus, the famous Hashmonaim king, conquered the city in 112 BCE, converted the population forcibly to Judaism. After the conquest, the population was considerably reduced and was completely annihilated by the Parthians in 40 BC. Bet Govrin was a new town, a successor to Marisha, and its history is charted throughout historical documents and the archaeological findings. The Romans and Byzantines called the city Eleutheropolis, which means the city of freedom. And it was the largest city in the south and had a large Jewish community. The park is divided into two sectors, the south, the biblical and Hellenistic city of Merisha, and north, Bedgovim, the Roman and Byzantine city. So what have we got here? Northern cemetery dating back to the 3rd and 2nd century BCE. Caves with rock-cut burial niches were discovered open to the public. The Polish cave. This was a cistern, which at a later stage was hewn into a house or a dovecut installation as well for raising pigeons. The cistern was hewn 3rd century BCE, but in 1943, Polish soldiers who visited the site here in World War II carved the words Warsaw, Poland, along with the Polish eagle, the country's symbol, and hence the cave became known as the Polish cave. There's the Columbarium cave. Now, this is a massive cage with over 2,000 niches carved as a nesting place for the breeding of pigeons. Their meat was used for ritual and eating purposes and their poop for fertilizers. There was a bath cave containing two subterranean alcoves. Water was channeled for bathing and ritual purposes. Cave dwelling and cisterns were built at ground level during the Hellenistic period. 150 square meters of a central courtyard surrounded by rooms. Below the living quarters, cisterns that gathered rainwater. The Sidonian Burial Cave. This system of burial cave dates back as well to the 2nd century BCE. Rectangular niches were restored and the original paintings were restored on the basis of sketches made by archaeologists who excavated the site. The inscriptions are found here, shed light on the ethnic origin of those buried here, the Edomites, Sidonians and Greeks, as well as on the mythology and art of the period. It's absolutely stunning. Then the bell caves, these were hollowed out during the Byzantine and early Arab period. About 80 caves made up a single link system. Many ravens within these caves, and it was made famous in one of the Rambo movies, if you recall, Sylvester Stallone roping himself down in one of the bell caves looking out for the terrorists. It was filmed right here, guys. Amphitheater. Impressive structure was discovered in the area north of Route 3, and the Beit Govrin edifice, which is circular and entirely enclosed, is a genuine amphitheater designed for gladiator combat and perhaps even for water games. So, guys, that's it. 
here at Bedgall Wind Telmu Shan National Park. It's a one to five hour visit. Now you can spend the whole day there, plenty of shade, shop to buy some goodies and stuff as well, but you can't miss out. Small entrance fee, five hours. You got the car, you got the kids, you got the missus, you got the esky guys. Do yourselves a favor, come down to Telmu Shan Bedgall Wind. You won't regret it. So that's all from me for this week from Effie as we explore Israel with Effie. Till next week, guys, all the best. Take care. Shalom, shalom. Effie, that was stunning. Rambo 3, I remember that. Didn't didn't he take on the Russians there in Rambo 3? Russian, Taliban, you name it, he took them all. What's the yeah. difference? The guy made a billion bucks. He doesn't care who he's fighting, but it was wonderful. Yes, yeah, absolutely wonderful. Thanks, mate. We'll catch you again next right. week. Stay well. All the best, guys. Take care. Shalom, Till shalom. Shalom, shalom. If you want to get in touch with Effie, his email is efyaac at netvision.net.il. Okay, time for another Mythbuster with David Schulberg on the Sheikh Jarrah evictions. You're listening to Lachaim 2 Life on 92.3 FM, 3 Triple Z, and we'll be right back after David with our tribute to the late great fetcher, Jackie Mason Mensch. Welcome to the, the Mythbusters. Just the facts, man. Thank you all for coming out today in solidarity with Palestine. As we know, the ethnic cleansing campaigns are going forward. We've seen that over the past week in Silwan. And there's been no change in decision in relation to Sheikh Jarrah. So the families in Sheikh Jarrah are awaiting the Israeli ethnic cleansing to proceed. And that gives us every reason to be out here today. Pro-Palestinian protesters have been out on the streets of Melbourne shouting their anti-Zionist slogans like Palestine will be free from the river to the sea and always was and always will be Palestinian land. To begin with, you heard the voice of an alleged Palestinian woman, Justine, whose father grew up in Gaza. Somehow she gets to be a Palestinian woman when I would assume she wasn't born in Gaza. It's like calling me Polish just because my parents were born in Poland. It's got to do with this implicit declaration of war against the Jewish character of the State of Israel, the Palestinian right of return. You heard the threat of evictions and home demolitions in the Sheikh Jarrah and Silwan districts of East Jerusalem being called ethnic cleansing. The decision concerning Sheikh Jarrah has been postponed. The Israeli government convinced the court to delay the court hearing for Sheikh Jarrah evictions until August 2nd because of the big kerfuffle that took place in May involving Hamas. However, the decision on Sheikh Jarrah ultimately does not depend on the government. Israel has a fiercely independent judiciary and will hopefully be able to make its decision on legal grounds and not be forced to bow to intense political pressure from outsiders and the threat of more rockets from Gaza. The Sheikh Jarrah neighbourhood is old, ancient in fact, with the first record showing up in the 12th century. Historians say for thousands of years there has been a permanent Jewish presence living in Sheikh Jarrah next to the tomb of Shimon HaTzadik also known as Simeon the Just, who was a Jewish high priest during the time of the Second Temple. He died in the 3rd century BCE. Many Jews until today referred to the neighbourhood as Shimon HaTzadik. His tomb and the surrounding compound was actually purchased in 1875 by the Sephardic Community Committee and the Ashkenazi Assembly of Israel. Fast forward to the 1900s. In 1905, an Ottoman census that included Sheikh Jarrah and its surrounding areas found 97 Jewish families living in the area alongside 167 Muslim and six Christian families. Following Israel's War of Independence in 1948, the Jewish population was expelled from Sheikh Jarrah since the area fell on the Jordanian side of the new border. Eight years later, in 1956, Jordan relocated 28 Palestinian families who were displaced during Israel's War of Independence to Sheikh Jarrah. The move was approved by the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian refugees, and the organisation stipulated that the families would be given ownership of their homes after three years, which would then end their refugee status. The Jordanian government, which had no legitimacy in the West Bank, being recognised only by the United Kingdom and Pakistan, never did formally transfer over the property rights to the Palestinians. By the 1950s, Sheikh Jarrah had changed hands several times from Ottoman rule to British rule to Jordanian rule to Jordanian rule with assistance by UNRWA and was in part stipulating property rights in the area. 
By this time, the Jewish population, which had been documented living there for thousands of years, had completely moved out or was expelled, and the Palestinian population had moved in or was relocated to the neighbourhood. Into 1967, 19 years after 1948, East Jerusalem, including Sheikh Jarrah, came under Israeli control following the end of the Six-Day War. Since then, the international community considers the area occupied by Israel, which claims authority over the region. A 1970 Israeli law is at the centre of the legal debate over the evictions of the 58 Palestinians. From Sheikh Jarrah, the law gives Jewish Israelis the right to reclaim East Jerusalem properties that were once owned by Jews before 1948, as long as they could show proof of ownership or expulsion by British or Jordanians. Palestinians who lost their land do not have the same legal right to sue for property lost after the war. In 1972, the Sephardic Community Committee, which previously owned the tomb of Shimon HaTzadik, first sued for ownership over a property in the neighbourhood and the court ruled in their favour in 1976. Then in 1982... Residents signed a legal agreement that allowed them to remain in the Sheikh Jarrah property as long as their status changed from owner to tenant and that they would pay rent. Since then, the Palestinian signers say they were coerced into signing and no longer recognised the agreement. The families at the centre of the new case were reportedly offered a similar deal by Jewish developers, but that was turned down. The offer allowed the Palestinians to stay in their homes paying rent as long as the signee was alive and they were to be given protected tenant status. Sheikh Jarrah shot into the international spotlight in the 2000s when Israeli courts ordered the evictions of three Palestinian families following a series of lawsuits because they were refusing to pay any rent. There have been no court-ordered evictions since 2009. In May, the Israeli Supreme Court delayed its decision by a month, saying that it will honour a Palestinian request asking for Israel's Attorney General to weigh in on the case. Israel's Attorney-General notified the country's Supreme Court in June that he will not interfere in the decisions surrounding evictions. In view of the many legal proceedings conducted over the years in relation to the real estate at the centre of the dispute, the Attorney-General came to the general conclusion that there is no room for him to appear in the proceedings, a statement from the office of Avichai Mandelblit said. His office went on to say that the case was too weak, adding that his legal opinion would not be able to prevent the evictions. The decision by the Attorney-General means the ruling on the case now rests with Israel's highest court, but the Palestinians keep on bleating about ethnic cleansing. Go figure. Catch a debate between Fleur Hassan Nahum, Deputy Mayor of Jerusalem, and Samir Abdul Razak Sinijlawi, Chairman of the Jerusalem Development Fund and a Fatah activist, on the proposition that the evictions and home demolitions in Sheikh Jarrah and Suwan are legitimate. You can find it on the Israel Connections YouTube channel. You can find the full playlist for the Israel Connection by going to YouTube and typing hashtag Israel Connection into the search bar there. The Jewish world, actually the world, lost a real mensch, the last of the great comic fetchers, Jackie Mason, 93. He was all Jewish on steroids with balls. He loved Jews, he loved Israel. Baruch Dayan Ha'emet. How are you doing? Very pleasant. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's a thrill to see me in person. You're not sure? <laughs> I came here as a personal favor because I know how important it is to you to see me tonight. Because I'm one of the few people who are dedicated to humanitarian purposes. I'm one of the few people on this site who has not in show business for the money. Most people do everything for money. To me, money is nothing. I never made a living and I got used to it. <laughs> Let's be honest about it. Money doesn't make you happy. It never could. I know a guy lives in a house without a sink, without hot water, without a ceiling. Got nothing, but he's happy. You know why? Stupid. Isn't it rich? Are we a pair? here at last on the ground. You in mid 
I learned this from my grandfather. My grandfather taught me something before he passed away that I never forgot. And I think you should all remember it. Especially this guy in the front that don't look like too intelligent or quite. <laughs> you ever remember this? What do you do for a living? Are you a doctor, mister? You look like some kind of a thief. I just don't know what. <laughs> I don't call doctors thieves. But let's be honest about it. We know that doctors can be trusted. They know it themselves. They know it. Why do you think when a doctor operates, he wears a mask? He don't want you to see who's doing the whole thing. <laughs> That's why they wear gloves. You think the gloves are for sanitary reasons? Fingerprints. Isn't it bliss? Don't you approve? One who keeps tearing round, one who can't move. Where are the clouds? Send in the clouds. I hope you don't think I'm picking on doctors because uh, today I had a bad throat myself. I had to see a doctor. I didn't know what was wrong with me. I had a terrific earache. This is a true story. It's not even my act. It was a horrible thing. I went in to see this doctor. He looked into my ears and he said right away, he said, I see your trouble. He said, it's wild women. He said, do you know that wild women could affect your hearing? I said, is that true? He said, what? Just when I thought opening doors Finally again with my usual flare sure of my lies no one is there music is very important mm. music is a lot more important than what's going on in this country today I'll tell you that this obsession with sex <coughs> mm. disgusting don't you think sex is dirty? I hope so. <laughs> That's a terrible thing to say. I'll tell you the truth. I don't think sex is dirty, but this obsession with it is disgusting. Every book about sex, every movie about sex, every play about sex, it's about time they realize there's more important things than sex. Why don't they talk about music? Don't you think music is more important than sex? I mean, for a man in your condition. <laughs> You want me to tell you the truth? I always thought music was more important. I always did. But then I started to notice that if I don't hear a concert for a year and a half, it don't bother me. <laughs> now, I want to ask you a question. Did you ever see anybody get up five o'clock in the morning to hear a concert? <laughs> you ever see a guy call up his best friend and say, Hello, Sam, have I got a concert for you? <laughs> you ever see a guy go into a strange town and say to a taxi driver, Listen, you know it is a hot concert in this <laughs> You ever see a guy give a bellhop a hundred dollars and here, send up a concert? <laughs> you ever see a house detective bang on a door and holler, get that concert out of here? <laughs> How much could you get for the best concert? Six dollars? And that's Paganini himself. The best, that's all he could get. You know what the waist girl gets in a massage parlor today? A fortune. And where do you think she gets the fortune from? Paganini. <laughs> Don't you love fires? My fault, I fear. I thought that you'd want what I want. Sorry, my dear. But where are the clouds? Quick, send in the clouds. Don't bother, they're here. What's your name? You have a Jewish name? In the United States, nobody has a Jewish name. Americans want to make sure they don't sound too Jewish, so every Jewish kid now is Tiffany Schwartz. <laughs> Alison Ginsburg. Ashley Lipschitz. He's getting more reformed all the time. I know one kid is named Crucifix Finkelstein. <laughs> the only people left with Jewish names anymore are black people. They're the only ones with Jewish names that are black people. <laughs> Whoopi Goldberg. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? 
There's no Jewish names and there's no Jewish words. Do you understand this? The only people proud to be Jewish, the Jews in London are proud to be Jewish. Did you know that? I performed for the Jews in London and I performed for the Queen of England. Isn't that ironic that the Queen of England loved me? She didn't think I was too Jewish. I come back to the Yentas and book a little too Jewish for my taste. The Queen of England loved me. After the show, she started to talk like me. That's right. She said, all right, he wasn't that good. He was pretty good. I didn't like him that much, but it's better than nothing. Close enough. I didn't answer. She was too Jewish for me. I became a comedian, people don't notice, because I was always very self-conscious. I always was. I am to this day. I was once so self-conscious that if I even went to a football game, if I saw the players get into a huddle, I used to think that they were talking about me. <laughs> That's when I went to a psychiatrist. I said to him, I said, what is it? He said, it's $25 a visit. <laughs> I said, for $25, I don't visit. I move in. <laughs> then he took out an inkblot. He said to me, what do you see from this inkblot? I said, I see that you need a new fountain pen. I figured for $25, I'll drive him crazy. <laughs> then he said, tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. I said, I want $24 change. <laughs> Good night. Thank you very much. Isn't it rich? Isn't it queer? Losing my timing this For headlines from tomorrow's Australian Jewish News, the voice of Australia's Jewish community. Gap year game changer. Student with COVID isolating. Jewish community song on Paralympics coverage. Ajax targeted with anti-Semitic graffiti. Bar Mitzvah boys recall convict past. Bennett weighs up Sheikh Jarrah delay. Iran, closer than ever to nuclear threshold. Inspirational Jackie Mason. Brave Fox wins kayaking bronze. To read more coverage of local, federal and international news, opinion, arts, lifestyle and sport, pick up your copy of the Australian Jewish News from newsagents and supermarkets in southeast of Melbourne or for weekly home delivery, subscribe at subscribe.jewishnews.com. .net.au Have you heard the news? What did it say? So that's it for another Lachaim. Two Life, nearly in the can. I was very impressed with my guest Peter Wertheim, co-CEO of the ECAJ, along with the work of the Executive Council of Australian Jury. And that said, Alan Friedman... Vice President of the Australian Jewish Association, in his editorial, did make some excellent valid points, re some of our major communal organisations. How about exploring Israel with Effie, taking us to the Beit Guvrim, Tel Marisha National Park? Another stunner, even if it is on radio. Close your eyes and you're there with Effie. The Sheikh Jarrah Mythbuster with the Israel Connections, David Schulberg. Excellent as always. 
Now, a couple of little plugs. Tomorrow night, Thursday, Evelyn Crape's King Lear kicks off at the 45 Downstairs Theatre in Flinders Lane. Well worth a night out. And the JNF Forever is back on Zoom tomorrow, Thursday afternoon at 3pm, with the Hulla Prince himself, Idan Khabasov. Idan will be live from Tel Aviv for a fun and interactive Hulla braiding and baking experience. For all the details, please check out the JNF Facebook page. Right, you'll find in about 15 minutes to half an hour a recording of tonight's Lachaim program at 3zzz.com.au. Click on the down arrow in the Listen to a Show square and scroll down to the Jewish group. You'll find it there. Links to YouTube recordings of tonight's interviews will be posted to the Lachaim and Morris Klein Facebook pages tomorrow. Please check out the other two programs that make up the Jewish group here at 3ZZZ. The Hebrew Hour, Shabbat Shalom, 3pm on Friday, and the Yiddish Hour, 11am on Sunday. If you'd like to contact us here at Lachaim, our email is lchaim3zzz at gmail.com. For only $16, please consider becoming a member of the Jewish group here at 3ZZZ. And for seniors, it's just $11. Again, click on 3zzz.com.au. Many thanks again to Team Lachaim, Dr. George Bankey, the executive producer, Dr. Mori Frankel and Jeff Deegan. As we all know, the Olympics are happening in Tokyo. And finally, for the first time, the IOC remembered the 11 Israeli athletes slaughtered in Munich in 1972. What took them so long? And I shed a few tears watching it. So in honour of both the Munich 11 and the Ivri Anochi, the fabulous Jackie Mason, middle name Moshe, just like me, we're going to go out with a Benny Friedman song, which I love and have played many times. Ivri Anochi, I'm a Jew and I'm proud. Until next week, stay well and COVID safe. Keep going Aussies and Israelis. L'chaim, to life. I'm Yisrael Chai and peace.
you, officer. License and registration, please. Here you go.